Welcome back. This is Better Things with Joe Bianca, episode four. We have an exciting announcement for this episode. We have our first sponsorship. It's a little outfit called the Breeders' Cup. You may have heard about them. Obviously, the gold standard in world championship racing. They're going to be sponsoring a segment where I give out plays for that weekend's Breeders' Cup challenge races. For this week, it's the Haskell. Really exciting race, really star-studded race. So stay tuned later on after the interview, and we'll have my plays for the Haskell coming up this Saturday at Monmouth. But in the meantime, I had a really cool chat yesterday with Michael Baychock, who's a public handicapper for the New Orleans Times Picayune. He famously won the NHC, winning a million dollar prize back in 2012. Very sh- smart, very sharp guy who has a lot of opinions on everything racing, even a little bit of politics as well. He's a political consultant in his regular life. So we had a lot of fun, talked about a lot of stuff. Check out our interview with Michael Baychock. So we're thrilled to welcome to Better Things with Joe Bianca. This time, Michael Baychock, who was a 2012 NHC winner, won a million dollars for getting that contest home. He's a very outspoken guy in racing. I've actually been looking forward to this since I hit him up. Michael Baychock, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Joe. I'm, I'm really looking forward to whatever we're going to talk about. Yeah, you Michael, very few details about what we're actually going to talk about. But let's start with this. I read an interesting story about how you got into racing, and I honestly couldn't believe that the interviewer didn't ask a follow-up question. James Carville took you to the track. That was your first time? Yeah, I know. That's hard to believe. So, um, uh, yeah, so I was probably 12, 13. James Carville worked for my dad. Uh, James was a lawyer back then, not a very good one, which is why he was babysitting me on a Saturday uh, (laughs) instead of doing a deposition, which I think my dad was doing. So he, uh, you know, he said, hey, you got to watch Mike for the day. And James said, fine, but I'm going to the track. And so uh, dad said, fine, take him to the track. So we went to New Orleans. We loaded up, you know, with so he must have been probably, I'm guessing, 26, 28, something like that. Uh, and we loaded up in some, you know, junker and uh, with his buddies, his degenerates. And uh, and we went to the fairgrounds. And I just, you know, as then th- the story becomes very similar, you know, to many other people. I just fell in love with it. You know, I just uh, I love the competition. I love being able to, you know, decipher the numbers and and pick, you know, try to pick winners against other people um, who were much older than me. And we just kept we kept doing it and doing it. And then my dad, you know, kind of got a little jealous, I think, because he's like, well, you're going to the track again with James. I'm going to go. And so we started going and he got into horse racing, bought some horses. And and that's uh, yeah, that's how I got into it. What's the follow up question? No, I mean, that was that's the whole story. It sounds like. You rarely hear about the, the the kid who gets his parents into racing. Usually it goes the other way around, but it sounds That's like right. is your dad still into racing. My dad passed away in 94, but yes, gotcha. he was. Uh, we went to the Derby. I believe the first Derby we went to was 79. Uh, and then we went for like, you know, 15 years in a row, um, maybe 20 years in a row. I think my last derby with him was 1994 which was the year that he, he died so yeah we we never we did not miss a derby for 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 the day we started going and he again he, he took me to saratoga for the first time the only time until my past few trips in i'm going to say 1980 it was i think it was the wise times travers we went for the travers um and we went up there and then i did not go back until probably 2014, and I, I've rarely missed a summer. Although this summer is looking a little iffy, whether whether I get back up there. Well, I, we hope we hope to see you up there. But you know, you, you're best. You're known for a lot of things these days. But you were first best known for winning the NHC in 2012. Big big purse, obviously, and had to be like the highlight of, of your life as a horse player. But how did you get to that point where you could win a contest like that? Like there had to be a lot of hard lessons along the way playing in handicapping tournaments like what what were the things that you took from some of the earlier struggles to help you get there well you know that's really what it was joe it was uh learn learn by uh trial by fire uh because there weren't any books written on it there weren't any articles written on you know basically uh back then uh pete ford and Tao's book which was a you know a great book about the contest player um not not just because i'm in it but it was just it was the first and probably only book written about how to win a contest that came later um, so it was trial by fire and I was doing it wrong for so many years. Uh, I say that, but I won second place in one of the you bet. I don't know if you remember you bet. Um, that was the predator. I think twin spires ultimately bought them. Um, there was a, 
probably a two or three month contest live money. Um, and I'm going to not remember when it was, but I think it was the Fusai Chipegasis Derby year. Um, it was 99, and, I think, 99 or 2000. Yep, that's right. And so um, I ended up winning second place in that for 20,000. Um, and so, you know, I kind of thought, and that was live money though. So the other, the NHC, of course, was $2 win place. And I made the mistake that most people make, um, which I was making in my betting as well at the time, was just, you know, try to pick winners. And I know that sounds counterintuitive to a lot of people, maybe who are listening to this for, or, you know, just getting in the horse racing. But um, it's the most important lesson that I ever learned in, in gambling and horse racing is, you know, you have to look for value. And just picking winners, especially at horse racing, is, is just not going to get you to be a profitable player. Um, and especially in contests, I think that that axiom is probably, you know, multiplied many times because picking winners in $2 win place contests will just it'll just you'll just lose. Um, you know, you have to find some value. So I ended up one year at the fairgrounds. I don't know what it was, mid 2000s, entering a contest just because I was there. Had never heard about the NHC. Might have been like 2008 or something. And I ended up finishing fifth. I missed it by like, I don't know, a dime to go to Vegas. And then I started looking into seeing like, what is all this about, right? Um, and so I qualified the next few years. Uh, in 2011, I finished 23rd. And that was the first year that I walked into that room, uh, you know, with 400, 500 other people and really thought that I had a chance to win. And I think that was part of it too. I'd figured it out a little bit about how to play. Uh, and then when I, when I walked into the room in 2012, I knew I could win, but I also knew that there were probably 300 people in there that couldn't win. Uh, it's not like that anymore. I mean, everybody that's in that room, probably 90% can win the contest. I faced a little bit of a softer field, you know, just because people were just kind of getting to know how to play contests. A lot of them were like me in 2008, when you walked in there, you just didn't know how to play. Um, so that, yeah, so that's how I learned how to play. I learned how to play online, just trial and error. And most of it was error. You know, I just, yeah. uh, but ultimately I think I figured it out. Um, and, and yeah, I was able, lucky, lucky enough to win it in 2012. Can you just talk quickly about the difference between live money contest and the two hour win place contest? Cause I find the live money contest a little bit more congruous to betting the horses on a day-to-day -day basis. Whereas with the two dollar win place contest, you know there aren't there aren't necessarily races where you zero in on one horse and say this is my pick. And I've just found that in the win place contest, there are so many times where my alternate wins, and I'm just kicking myself because I didn't pick the right horse. What do you prefer, and do, does your strategy differ? How does your strategy differ through the between those two formats? Yeah, well, I'm not a very good live money player. Um, I don't know what for whatever reason I just haven't figured out the, and I don't play a lot of them. That's number one. Um, but number two is I just don't, uh, I'm not very good at it. I've placed in a few, um, Saratoga one year, finished second, um, you know, $2 win place. You're kind of shooting for there, there, there's usually a limited number of races, 10, and you're shooting for a number, a score that you're trying to get to. So let's say it's, you know, 10 races, you probably want to get to a hundred, you know, that's going to usually put, so you have to kind of construct plays that take you there. Um, and if you're picking two to ones all the time, you know, then or three to ones, you're not going to get to a hundred. So to me, it's almost a little bit easier because you know that when you look over your, your sheet and you say, wow, I have like, uh, you know, six favorites or six second choices and a fa I'm not going to get to a hundred. Somebody's going to get to a hundred. Right. Um, so you got to go back and it's, it's a little bit easier for me to do that. And I, I like to play longer shots anyway. So it just lends itself. I'm just not a very good favorite player. So in live money, you know, you can construct tickets um, that use the favorite um, and, and win a lot of money. And, and that to me is just, it's just, it, it's polar opposite of what I do anyway on a regular basis. So that's maybe why it's difficult, but I think there's also a, um, you know, shoot for a number, but it, in the live money where you're using like real money, um, there's going to be a Del Mar contest in a couple of weeks that I actually I want to entry to and I'll be in. Um, so it's $3,500 of like real money. Um, and you know, you can, you can construct tickets 
to get you to a certain, but you really don't know what it's going to be, what the winning number is going to be. And it seems like it just always comes down to the last race, you know? And if you don't have a good, strong opinion on the last race, you're almost like forced to go all in to get to whatever, you know, 60,000 maybe or 50,000, you know, that you got to get to. And I just, it, it doesn't feel natural to me to do that. You know, like if I'm, let's say if I'm in, I got 20 grand going into the last race at Del Mar, uh, you know, to win 150 or 200. Um, but I don't have an opinion on the race, you know, I like then it's really difficult to, to push all that 20,000 uh, into the middle. Yes. Uh, you Real know, money. but, 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 you know, there are people that do it. My, my very good friend, Brian Shinbert and his dad, Bill, they've had tremendous success. They just, some people can, you know, not only can push it in, but can also construct tickets. It's, a lot of it is ticket construction, you know, um, which I'm not right. very good at. So two things I'm not good at, which means that's why I'm not really good at live money. Gotcha. All right. So this is a question about something you wrote earlier this year. It's actually there's a story in the TDN about it by Bill Finley, my uh, colleague and co-host on the writer's room. You were basically leaving horse betting and moving on to sports betting. Judging by you being in that Delmar contest, hasn't completely set in yet. How is that going? Because I know it's the e it's an easier thing to say than do, especially when you've grown up yeah. with it. It gets in your blood betting the horses. So, so where are you on that now? Yeah. So it's hard. Uh, and I, and I, when I said it, I meant it. Um, and, um, you know, my buddies, we usually go to Saratoga. So we decided, they decided that we're going to Del Mar. So I figured, okay, if I'm going to be at Del Mar, I'm going to try to get in this contest, you know, max. So I played a few feeders to get in and I won. Um, but no, I had, I had quit, um, you know, right after the NHC, uh, I had stopped completely. Um, so as someone said, I didn't quit. I was just on strike. Uh, yeah. And I'm on strike, yeah. basically. So, you know, I'll cross the picket line for the Derby, right? Uh, I'll cross the picket line when somebody wants to go to the track or I want to go to the track. Um, but on a daily basis, I'm probably, you know, 95% of what I was betting. I'm only betting maybe 5%. And I don't do it on a daily basis anymore, which I used to do, probably for the last five or six years. So, you know, there are days that I don't pick up don't open up twin spires or, you know, look at a form or anything. And um, those are good days and the weekends are better. Um, and it, it's more of a protest. It's more of a strike. And so I'm still, I'm still in that place um, because I, even though HISA has become, you know, the law of the land July 1st, you know, they, they it's, it's not, it's not necessarily what it sh is yet because we don't even have drug testing that they're implementing. So that's my, that's my strike. That's my protest. Once, you know, hopefully we can, racing can, you know, introduce a, uni a uniform drug testing um, program that's administered by a national entity, then I'll probably take another look. And, but yes, no, I've moved, you know, not all of my horse racing, but I've definitely moved to betting fantasy sports and um, and sports, not every sport. All right. Well, I want to ask you about that. I want to ask you about sports betting in a second, but I also just wanted to quote you from the story I was referencing before and your, your justification for why you said you were leaving. You said, I'm just fed up with the drug cheating. I'm fed up with the takeout. I'm fed up that we apparently can't get into a position to implement new and better drug testing. I have more outlets now to, to gamble. I live in Louisiana, which was a state up until last year, where the only thing available was horse racing. Now there's daily fantasy sports, which I enjoy, and the takeout is much, much better. Soon we'll have online sports betting. I'm a consumer. I have just found better products. I honestly don't can't argue with a lot of that. You know, I, I I think there are a lot of horse players out there who will be listening to this that feel that and and empathize with that. My only pushback would be that I think at least with Heisa, which you mentioned, and I think with more tracks, at least major tracks, being a little more sensitive to, to horse player issues, I do think that there is some progress in that regard. Do you think that racing at least is moving in the right direction on some of those things, even if it's not where you think it should be to get your business back? Yes, without question. First, I mean, there is HISA, right, which this time last year we didn't have. Um, they are moving forward. Um, you know, they're going to implement, hopefully, drug testing at some point, maybe next year. Uh, there are tracks that are paying attention to takeout um, that are offering – you know, lower takeout pick fives and pick fours, uh, 12%, which is pretty good, you know? Uh, so I think, I think they are, 
so yeah, I mean, I think we're kind of moving, but you know, horse racing is like a slug. I mean, a sloth. I mean, we just, as an industry, if they're ever in agreement with each other, it still takes a long time to move, you know, uh, just like any industry, I would suppose. But we don't have a commission, you know, and like football, yeah. when they, when when a rule in football impacts coaches or players or fans, the commissioner makes a decision and it's done, you know, and we just don't have that. We have, you know, probably 39 or 40 state racing commissions that, that regulate racing. Uh, and they're all different rules, you know, so it just, it's, it's very difficult, but I'm hopeful that it one, you know, one day that, that it'll be, um, cleaner, not cleaned up totally, but cleaner that I'm, I'll come back and, and cause I love it. And look, there's very few places you can go and you can bet a dollar, you know, and win $10,000. Right. I mean, you just on a trifecta or yeah. superfecta. I mean, you know, that, that's not a, you know, that's not. Gambling games don't offer that those kind of odds, and so that's that's appeal. Oh, yeah. Unless you get like a slot jackpot or something, you can't make that kind of money that quickly. Which I mean, you can't obviously can't lose money as quickly either um, with other things. But let's talk about your sports betting handle. What have you shifted to specifically? What have what's worked well for you? What are some things that you, you want to get better at? Like how how is that going for you? So I'm not I'm not really a major I mean a major sport player. So I'm not. I'm not going to play. I don't play any baseball. Uh, I don't play any. Uh, I'm talking about sports betting. Um, I, I, I was trying to play daily fantasy baseball, on, you know, DraftKings or FanDuel, and I'm just not very good at it. I, it seems to me that it's much more complicated than um, other sports, you know. Um, so it was very difficult for me to, to win. So I stopped until I learned some more. Um, I bet tennis. I bet a lot of tennis. Um, I watch a lot of tennis. Um, I know that there's a play tennis. I know that there's, you know, the line makers don't seem to sometimes catch up with uh, players that have improved quickly and they can improve quickly, you know, um, and also surfaces. Um, they don't really sometimes factor in surfaces into, uh, well, they do, of course, but it just, it may lag a little. So I feel like I have a, a little bit of an edge and I'm doing, you know, I do, I, I win money at tennis. Um, I'll play soccer, uh, Premier League soccer. Um, again, I think, and also MLS, I'm on a little, I'm, I'm riding a team right now, Austin Football Club on the road. They're just, they're just like road warriors and they always get their, their, their dogs. And so um, that's a good one. But I watch soccer as well. So, you know, it's two things that I'm, I, I actually I watch, I enjoy um, and, you know, just apply those sort of uh, those observations and also, you know, gather other people's. There are a lot of, you know, good experts in both um, both tennis and in uh, soccer that are offering their opinions for free. You know, um, and so you gather, you scrape those and and you see what's what. And so those are the two things I've really now I'll, I'll play a lot of fantasy football. Um, when it comes up, oh, I had a really good score in golf mm. about a month ago, $3 contest. And I took first for 3000. So that was a good wow. but it, golf is just so golf is like, it's the most random. I mean, it, it is just, yeah. it's almost too random, but it's, it is fun to watch and daily fantasy golf is pretty good. Um, but I'll do daily fantasy football as well. So I guess you did find that thing that makes you money as quickly. Or as <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm ahead, but you know, it, it's a, I, you know, I'm I'm really not one of these. Also, one of these people. I know if anybody knows anything about daily fantasy, you know, there's people that play like if if the entry limit is 150, you know, for a three dollar contest or a ten or twenty, they're putting in 150 entries. I'm definitely more of a yeah. single entry person. I just I don't have the edge, you know, that they have. Um, the people that are doing multiple entries. So I try to, a lot of it is just, you know, just like horse racing. I mean, contests, you got to pick your, pick what's best for you. And the single entries are, you know, I, I can reduce their, the pros edge a lot, by just going single entry. I'm, I'm stoked to hear that you're a tennis guy. Cause that's something we have in common. I also play tennis, watch tennis, bet on tennis. One of the angles that I like is uh, over under games and especially in women's matches, 
because it'll often be like 19 and a half or 20 and a half, maybe 21 and a half. And then you don't even need three sets. You really only need two competitive sets if you like the over. So that's something that I've that I've lashed on to. But, but what about you? Is there a specific angle with tennis? You like? I need to go back and look uh, recently because, you know, I've played a lot over the last month or so leading, you know, the French and leading up to the French and the Wimbledon. I would I would guess that the majority of my bets are over and under games, as yeah. you said. Um, you know, it just when you know someone's going to be competitive and you know tennis, how it how it just you know that third set always presents itself. It seems, um, especially yeah. you know, like if you get a player to me that's I don't know plus or minus two forty, which is pretty that's a pretty good favorite. But you know, it's a it's a pre tournament. It's not a major. And they're going to play somebody who's really good right now and hungry. Eh, they may lose the first set, you know, and come back and win two out of three. You know, the, the angle that has worked for me, I crushed in Wimbledon. Djokovic will lose the first set. It looks like almost yeah. eight out of ten times now. Eight out of ten. So you got two things going for you there. You can bet lose first, you know, the other player to win the first set. In the final, I actually bet um, lose first set, win match, plus 410. That was or plus four fifty. Wow. That was, and that's what happened. I mean, but he for some reason he's felt he's again. It's a, just a pattern he's fallen into. He um, he doesn't care if he wins the first set or not. I mean, I know in his first four or five comeback matches he lost the first set in every one, and I, I, I think at Wimbledon he probably lost you know three or four out of the six matches first set something like that. So those little yeah. things, you know, just that's observation. It's non statistical. Totally non-statistical, which is tough these days. I mean, because you're you're competing against, you know, um, so many people that have you know that have algorithms and 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 programs and and you know they're going to be good. They're going to be better than you. So you got to get in there early on a line, or else it's gonna it's gonna really move, and you're not going to beat you know the closing line, which is kind of the the whole game. I totally agree about the about the up and coming player too because I was I was big on Yannick Sinner in this tournament and when he played Djokovic I was big on the money line for him and he was up two sets to, to none and as soon as Djokovic broke in the start that third set I took Djokovic going the other way well, that's the other so thing. I was able to hedge yeah him. that's a great you know that's the other thing is I, I do tend to do a lot of in game um, on tennis yeah um, yep. who was it today uh, team was playing somebody. Um, and he lost the first set and he was plus 110. He may have ended up getting higher than that, but I took plus 110. Now he came back and won, you know, he had a couple match points against him, but you know, you, you could take a player who was minus, you know, 180, 200 and get that player for plus 110. When you know there's really yeah. no, I mean, he just lost the first set. That's all. It's not a big, you know, especially those higher end players like that. They just buckle down and, and come back and they can grind it out. Well, and like like you're saying, the in, I find the in-game betting most profitable in other sports too, like basketball and football. I'll bet a little bit, like player points over under. Like I remember Devin Booker had like two points at halftime of one of those Suns playoff games, and his total for the game at halftime was ten and a half. So it's like you're basically betting if you're betting against that, he's not going to get double digits. You know, even even if he had a slow start to the game, like football, you'll see a guy with like a hundred yards receiving with like a quarter and a half to go, and his over under will be you know, 120 or something like that. That's one catch, you know, that's yeah. one catch down the field. And I think I do agree that it seems like that those are the things that the the betting sites don't really adjust the markets to very well. You know, they're good at setting the initial lines, but once the action starts, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a free for all. And they're just guessing a lot more. Would you agree with that? I don't know if they're guessing, but I don't know that they're as efficient um, as, as they, yeah. as, as they, you know, are with a straight game line. Um, there's, you know, they're much smart. They're much smarter than I am, but they're, they're certain, but, but they're not, you know, there is something to be said, just like horse racing about observation. So, you know, a number does not necessarily mean what a number means. I know that's talking in code, but you know, a guy that has scored four points in the first half, but it's getting open looks, you know, and it, yeah, he's just missing. I mean, that may mean that he's going to keep getting those open looks and score, a horse that, you know, wins with a terrible trip or a great trip or whatever doesn't look so good on the next day, you know, or the next race. So it's just I think it's using the thing that I have 
because I'm not a computer numbers guy, just the power of observation. Um, probably, I don't know that it gives me an edge. It gives me, you know, a, a smaller advantage, you know? Yeah. Well, and like in, in game betting too, you're you actually get to see the action first. When you bet before the game, you're betting blind. Basically you're just, you're just, you know, presuming what will happen in game betting. You actually get to see the flow of the game. Like you're saying, if a guy's open and he's missing shots, yeah, you brought up the, the computer wagers. You know, that's a topic that's on a, a lot of horse players' minds because they, they feel like they're getting squeezed out by these giant computer wagers and th- these algorithms. And it seems like it's harder and harder for a meat and potatoes horse player like me or you to overcome that. Now, we've seen we've seen some steps to combat that. Naira, I think, has done a good job stopping that wagering within, you know, t- within two minutes of, of the of post time. You know, what? Do you think that that is something that can really that can actually really drive people out of the game? Do you think it's something that can be, can be com- better combated by other sports? Like, where do you think the future of that is? Do you think it's just something that's going to get worse or could it get better? I think it's going to get worse. And I don't think it's just going to be the computer groups, but definitely it drives, you know, you know this from playing for so long. A horse that, um, you know, might pay $8 five years ago. Uh it's paying probably. I'm, I'm I'm generalizing, but that horse is probably paying six twenty, you know, um, and so that 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 in itself just hurts, you know, the profitability of people like you and me. Um, whereas the computer program is going to find that horse and has found that horse, you know, that they couldn't find that the general public couldn't find before, um, and so yes, that that hurts, but we're not going to get rid of it. I mean, there are going to be people out there that are using computer programs, whether they're, you know, you call them computer groups or whatever they are. That's just part of the game. So that's part of the one of the things that has driven, you know, I mean, it's just harder, Joe. I mean, it's harder to make money betting on horse racing than it ever has been, period, period. First of all, they've gotten rid of. I don't want to get on a soapbox. I'm going to take a Please deep do. Please, this is the show for <laughs> No. But they've gotten rid of the bets that I think give bettors like you and I, you know, kind of a, an advantage. Like, to me, the $2 pick six. Um, or the dollar, you know, maybe the dollar pick six. But the $2 pick six, you know, was just a bet that was good for me because it, I guess it gave you a range of races. You could single in on an opinion um, and wager, you know, a reasonable amount of money and you weren't competing against so many combinations, you know, because now we're competing in so many combination combinations because it's 20 cents. Uh, so somebody's going to have your combination, right? <laughs> Whereas before there might be two or other three people. That's just a, I just rude that I just, that's, that was a terrible day when they, you know, basically we don't have any $2 pick six. Anymore. Yeah. Um, so, but it's just harder to make money at horse racing because the horses that you figure are winning or going to win or just paying less. Even the, the $12 horse is paying eight something, you know, um, and that just makes it difficult on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's the computer wagering thing is tough because they're not breaking any rules specifically. And then, you know, you, you, you can't, can't legislate against innovation in that way, but you know, it's just, it, it is yeah. squeezing us, squeezing us guys out. And yeah, I mean, especially the stuff that the, you know, the stuff that looks like past posting, but we know isn't, you know, when the odds drop during the race, like talk, tell a sports better that that might happen to them and see if they come back. <laughs> right. tell, tell a sports better that you go bet. And when the and when they kick off, you're getting plus seven. OK, but when the guy catches the ball and he's at the 30, you now get uh, plus six. Yes. How, how does you know that to me is just like we're not going to fix the computer wagering part, but we got to be able to explain it to a better like you bet this horse at six to one wow he won and you get seven to two or three to, it's just not it, it's it's not sustainable no. it's just not sustainable no i, know. I mean I, I just it's you know yeah, that's kind of where fixed odds betting comes in but that that needs to be you know mass adopted across the country i, ho- I hope it goes well in new jersey i gotta ask you about the about the bob baffrey lawsuit if you're willing to talk about it that was that was something that spoke to me specifically because I was a guy who needed Mandaloon that day. I would have had to pick four. I had a win bet on him. Probably would have been like six or 7,000 if Mandaloon had won that race other than Medina Spirit. But I assume going into that, you knew that was going to be a tough case to prove, to prove injury specifically, you know, instigated by Bob Baffert. Tell me your thought process in launching that class action suit and, and kind of just how it went in, in court. 
my, my, my thought process was strictly selfish to begin with. Um, it was, I was pissed off. Yeah. Right. Um, now look, I had, I, I had the exact, I cashed out really nice. Um, but you know, I could have cashed out 15 times higher, you know, 70 grand or something or 70, whatever it was. So I was just pissed. Um, and then, you know, when the drug test came back, then I really got, you know, okay, no one is doing anything about this. Now at that time, I didn't know, you know, what we know now that Churchill Downs, you know, was going to, was going to, you know, actively, uh, find some punitive action to take against Baffert, that Naira was going to ban him. So, but back in, you know, the month after his drug test, um, it was just going to, to me, it was just going to be, no one's going to do anything. So I was like, I'm going to do something. I, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's a long shot, but this is horse racing. So I'm going to do something and make a statement basically. And so, you know, we sued, um, we sued first in California. We moved the suit to New Jersey. You know, we have a couple hundred class action members currently. It's still in the courts. I mean, we have not, we, we really have not had any, um, hearing yet. There's been a motion to dismiss filed by Baffert's lawyers, um, which the federal judge has not ruled on yet. Now, that's the big hurdle. If we can get past a motion to dismiss, which I, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know whether we can or can't. Um, it's probably 50-50. I don't know. But if we can, then, then, we, have, then we have some, some avenues available to us to, to start gathering evidence, taking depositions. And and trying to find some relief for the people that were that were harmed that, that 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 you know were frauded. I mean, there's no question that Bob Baffert, the horse was drugged. That's a fact. The horse was drugged with a drug that was banned. That's a fact. The horse was disqualified. That's a fact. The only people that are not receiving relief in this are the betters. And who's responsible for that? It's Bob Baffert because he perpetrated, he is responsible for the horse and he perpetrated the fraud on better. So he's responsible. So I, I would love to get a day in court, you know, and just have, and let's, 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 let's discuss it and litigate it. But I don't know what's going to happen. Um, well, you know, the ruling could come down tomorrow that yes, um, they're going to dismiss the case and we're probably done at that point. I don't know. We may appeal or the ruling could come down like, Hey, you know what? The judge thinks that we have enough of a case to go forward and start gathering some evidence. And that wouldn't surprise me. either. Right. But I think the point has been made, though. I really and I'm not just about um, moral victories. I mean, I want financial victory for people that were, you know, frauded out of their money. But um, I think the point has been made. B-I-A-N-C-A. If you want to put my name down. At the bottom of that, that's how you spell my last name, because I'm one of those guys. I'm one of those guys who got cost a lot of money because of that. Um, but I, b- before we let you go, I wanted to ask about your your day job, because you're you're a political consultant. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's the other connection to, to, to Carville. Yeah, um, no, that's yeah. what I figured. Yeah, so I'm a political consultant. So I do political advertising um, all over the country. Um, and yeah, heavily involved in the current, you know, midterm elections all over today's election day in Maryland. So if you're in Maryland, go vote. So can um, you, uh, before <laughs> I'm, I'm hesitant to bring this up, this is a minefield with like the, the, the racing public and, you know, it's so many, so many, I'm used to it. Bring it up. There's so, so many Trump people I'm sure that are, that are listening to this. So I don't want to go too crazy with it, but just, you just give me like an overall view of someone who, who's done it for a long time. Just how crazy, how, what do you think of how crazy American politics has gotten? So, you know, as a, as a citizen, um, I'm, I'm just like most people. I'm totally fed up with the way the system is working or actually not working. Um, and so I feel the same frustration that, you know, most voters have when things go wrong in the country. Why can't we just fix it in Washington? Cause it's just not, they don't fix it. Okay. So we're, we're in a really bad place. I mean, cause nothing is getting done and, and when nothing gets done, people suffer. So I'm just as frustrated as the other person. On the other hand, I'm in this business and the business has never been better. There's more money. And this may be the cause of the first um, thing that I said, why nothing gets done. But there's more money in politics than there ever has been. I mean, it is a 
multi-billion dollar industry uh, on the spend on the political side spending. Um, I mean, for the wallet, that's a great thing, you know, for my business or but for governmental governmenting and legislating. It's awful, obviously, you know, um, so. It, it, we're, we're in a really bad spot. I mean, we're just in a bad spot, you know. I, you know, I, I, I take that point about it, it seems like now there's, there's just endless campaigning. You know, there's so there's so little emphasis on actually governing once you get into office. Like I, I, I saw this like with the Roe versus Wade decision recently and whatever you feel about that with your pro-choice, pro-life, whatever. I think a lot of people who are pro-choice were pissed off that when the you know, when the, the ruling first came down, the first reaction of a lot of the Democrats was to send fundraising messages. And it's like, well, you're in power right now. Don't tell me you can't do anything and just say to give me more money to get elected next time. So I think I feel like that's what, what you were talking about, where it's good for, for guys like you. And I'm sure you do a great job. But I just don't know how we get back to that point where it becomes about governing with the power that we gave you. You know, like how do we get back there? Well, you know, when we open the floodgates with Citizens United decision to allow corporations and, you know, to uh, participate in the political protests from an electoral standpoint, again, it's I don't think we can put that genie back in the no. bottle. Um, and what we have is we have not not really corporations, but we have um, people that own corporations, billionaires on both sides. And I hate to use the both sides argument because it's it, it doesn't hold up but there are republican billionaires and there are democratic billionaires um that are influencing these elections and they're spending their money um and god bless them because it's a free you know it's freedom it, that we have that in the country but there must be you know disclosure and there must be i don't i don't know if there if there can be limits but there has to be full disclosure and i don't think we're there yet because we have so many there are entities that you know we work for out that are never they they never report donors you know so we we spend a lot of money we don't report donors because it's not you don't you're not required so there's just an awful lot of money um, and it you know it's kind of corrupted the process as we knew it um, but I think it can be fixed and I think as a country you know we're going to survive it's just it's I, I do believe we're going to see some darker times ahead. Though. I, I totally agree. I wish I didn't feel that way. And I think the people, the thing that a lot of people don't get is that, you know, like you say, there are right wing billionaires, there are liberal billionaires. I think most of those people are committed to the status quo because that shit is working out great for them. You know, and I don't think it's this this real pitched battle between ideologies when it comes to really, really uber rich people. I think they're both committed to keeping things the way they are. And I think that's the root of what you were saying, that, you know, nothing ever gets done in Washington. Well, the system that works for that is not working for us, as you said, Joe, is working for somebody. Yeah. You know, uh, so you're right. I think that's there's a lot of truth to, 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 to what you said. I think there's some there are some exceptions, maybe many on both sides that, you know, they are ideologues and they want to see a certain yeah, for sure. policy passed. But there's also like, let's just, you know, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is working for me. Yeah. You know, so uh, let's keep it working. Yeah. What are all the little people complaining about? All right, Michael, you've been very, very generous with your time. And I know you're a soapbox guy because you brought it up earlier. Is there anything else that you want to complain about, rave about, rant about <laughs> before we get out of here? The floor is yours. I don't I mean, there's so many things. I, I think we could take another two hours. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm hopeful one day that we'll see the the larger casino company, you know, the, the DraftKings and the FanDuel's you know, start offering some sort of, uh, you know, props on jockeys and trainers and, uh, you know, horses winning and how many, you know, that kind of thing on a daily basis. Cause I think that would be a, a nice avenue for us to invest in. But again, I think it's also part of the, the problem is the regulation, you know, they have to go get approval from commissions and, uh, gaming commissions, racing commissions, horsemen's groups. It's just a, it's a mess, yeah. you know, uh, wouldn't you love a same game parlay on Traverse Day or something? Yeah. You know? uh, I mean, that would be Chad Brown two, over and under two, Jose Ortiz over and under three, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, those things would be, and that's going to, that's what will attract the non 
horse racing better into horse racing. Yeah, you know, it's not going to be win place show trifecta superfecta or these freaking jackpot uh, things, which are the worst. I think those are the worst you, things. Right? on the jackpot wagering. I think you'd be good. I mean, the jackpot thing is just it takes so much money out of the game, you know. Um, yeah. and, and so there's no churn. Um, but, but I think if we could if we could ever get DraftKings or FanDuel or whomever to get uh, some props on horse racing, I, that would be a major major step. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, and it's, it, it's, there's so much potential there, like you're saying, and so much potential for crossover to bring more betters from sports betting to here. Yeah. That's, and also just combining it with other sports. Like you bet the, the Chargers to win that night with so and so to win the Travelers. Right. Like, why is that not right. possible? It's not possible, Joe. Not in the world we live in, unfortunately. Right. Not On that scary note. Maybe not ever. I don't know. But uh, look, I know that they're looking at it. I mean, I know Johnny Avello at DraftKings. He's like, he's 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 a huge horse guy. I mean, big big time horse person. Um, he is looking at it. It's just difficult to to bring, and I don't know that the game is sustainable um, without bringing in new people. Nope. You know, at this. Point. Agreed. Yeah. So let's all hope for a little bit more crossover. It can be an opportunity. It doesn't have to be a threat. Having sports betting be legal. Michael Baychok, thank you so much for the time. This was great. I'd love to get a drink with you sometime in Saratoga. Continue this conversation. Appreciate the time, my man. Thank you, Joe. I enjoyed it. Great stuff. Okay, so I mentioned in the open that we are now sponsored by the Breeders' Cup here at Better Things with Joe Bianca. It's so exciting to have them aboard. They're obviously a huge name in racing. And like I said earlier, the gold standard in international championship racing and the way this is going to work is I'm going to do a handicapping segment for every weekend that there are nationally televised Breeders' Cup winning your in challenge races. And we'll kick it off this week with the grade one, $1 million TVG.com Haskell Invitational this Saturday, July 23rd at Monmouth Park. The winning your in program, if you're not, you're probably familiar, but if you're unfamiliar, is an immensely successful and popular initiative the Breeders' Cup launched in 2007 that features a constantly increasing schedule of big races mainly throughout the summer and fall that provide fees paid entries along with travel allowances for the corresponding Breeders' Cup races for the winners of various challenge races. It's been great for the Breeders' Cup, but honestly, it's also been great for the array of tracks these races are run at. And in a racing landscape where we're stuck with a lot of short fields and trainers ducking races, looking for the easiest spots, this is an incentive. And incentives like this bolster the fields of those races, give us a more full racing schedule with full top class fields on the road to the Breeders' Cup. So I'm really excited for this partnership. It's a natural one. I would be handicapping these races anyway. I'm sure all of you watching and listening are going to be handicapping these races anyway. So it's going to be a lot of fun the next six or eight weeks or so in the summer and fall. The Haskell is a very special race every year on the calendar, and Monmouth Park is a really special place. If you haven't been there, I strongly suggest you go if you're ever near the New Jersey coast. It's got a similar vibe to Saratoga in that it's a beautifully preserved historic track with a real kind of summer day party vibe to it and great atmosphere. People come to bring their coolers and hang out with friends and family at the track and this beautiful little ocean breeze comes in while you're watching horses run. It's really, it's bliss in the summer. The Haskell is the centerpiece of the meet. It's been run since 1968 every year at a mile and an eighth. This year it goes as race 12 on a 14 race program with a post time of 545 Eastern time. So let's get into it. Let's get into handicapping the Haskell and a little bit of the races outside of surrounding the Haskell. We have an eight, eight horse field in the Haskell with two horses expected to take the bulk of the wagering attention, but each have something to prove, which is what makes this a bettable race. A lot of times you see those short prices, you want to steer clear, but both Jack Christopher and Taba, who were the main contenders, have some questions to answer. Jack Christopher, to me, pound for pound, looks like the most talented three-year-old in the country today in what looks like an at least at least an above-average crop, if not an elite crop. He's undefeated in four starts by a combined 25 and a quarter lengths, including two grade one wins. And his race in the Woody Stevens was something to, to behold. We'll show the stretch run of that final 20 seconds or so. You generally don't see horses show the kind of acceleration he produced in the final furlong of that race. He came home in 35.71 for his final three-eighths. And, you know, what looked to be a kind of a comfortable win turned, turned into an absolute rout in the blink of an eye. And he's also proven that while he's plenty fast, he doesn't need the lead. So he's capable, I think, of letting someone else go, at least one horse go in the Haskell if they're hell-bent on getting to that to the front. But he, with that being said, he's never been around two turns. 
There's an old adage in betting horses that I'm sure a lot of you have heard. I find it to generally be true that you don't take horses at short prices doing something they've never done before. And this is a turning point race for Jack Christopher in terms of what he's going to be asked to do the rest of the year, whether he's going to stay at a mile or try to stretch out and be a Breeders' Cup Classic winner going a mile and a quarter. And while Chad Brown has shown immense confidence in him, even he doesn't know. He doesn't know until it happens whether or not he can go two turns and be the same horse that he is going one turn. And let's be clear, if he is, he's going to win this race. But we don't know that yet. And his, his pedigree lean sprint as well. His damn Russian no blush and was eased in her only start going beyond six and a half furlongs. Her second damn blushing Ogigian never traveled further than six furlongs. His sire Munnings and damn sire half hours were sprinter miler types. So there's no guarantee in his pedigree, as brilliant as he is, that he's going to be able to stretch out to two turns in a mile and an eighth. Going to Taba. Taba has similarly been one of the most impressive three-year-olds of 2022. Debuted with a 102 buyer and a seven and a half length win going six furlongs at Santa Anita. He was ambitiously placed in the Santa Anita Derby after that, asked to stretch out three furlongs and step into a grade one in just his second career start, which is basically unheard of. And he validated that confidence. He did so remarkably professionally for a horse with so little seasoning, switched off beautifully and ran away from a really talented stable mate of his in Messier, who had much, much more foundation going into that race. He could easily vault to the top tier of the three-year-old division. He's been a little bit forgotten recently if he wins this race. And while he doesn't have quite as much early speed as Jack Christopher, he's shown he's fast enough to not let that rival run away and hide if nobody else goes. But similar to Jack Christopher, he's got questions to answer. And for him, it's about where his current form stands. He was fairly close to a fast pace in the Kentucky Derby, but the fact of the matter is he never did any real running, never made a move, and didn't switch leads in the stretch, which is never a great sign. And in my opinion, he ran the worst race of the three Derby horses running in the Haskell, even though he was the first among them across the wire, considering White Barrio's extreme ground loss around both turns, and the fact that Cyberknife at least launched a little bit of a bid on the far turn before he flattened out badly. And those two will be significantly bigger prices than Tabo on Saturday. So the wagering strategies for this race will be, A, find a horse or two to back on the win end. And this is one of those rare scenarios because you have not only one, but two horses who are going to be below two to one. So you're essentially guaranteed to get at minimum four to one on anybody else in the race you like, probably more like five or six to one. So that's going to be my first play. B, going to play saver exactas with the two favorites over my picks because I do respect both of them as much as I have questions about their vulnerability as favorites. And C, find somewhere to lean in the pick four outside of the Haskell, spread in the Haskell, and then play a second smaller ticket pressing Jack Christopher and Taba because I think if you can beat them, I don't know that you're going to beat them for first and second within the race, but if you can beat them in the multi-race sequences where I think a lot of people are going to lean on those two, I think you can get paid. So let's figure out who we like. Let's look at the rest of the field by process of elimination. Two horses can't win this race without running by far the best race of their life. That's one-time Willard and King of Hollywood. Benavengo is not entirely possible. He's been working up a storm over the track, but he's still very, very unlikely. Crucially, though, Benavengo and one-time Willard bring early speed, which may make things tougher on Jack Christopher and to a lesser extent, Taba. So that leaves us with White Barrio, Cyberknife, and Howling Time. White Barrio comes out of a second in the Ohio Derby, while the latter two came out of a real thrilling stretch battle in the mat win, which ended with Cyberknife winning by the slimmest of photos after Howling Time had set the pace and battled back super gamely in deep stretch. Overall, while I respect White Barrio and the races he ran earlier this year at Gulfstream Park, I've yet to see him reproduce that form outside of Gulfstream. And I thought he really didn't have any excuse in the Ohio Derby. He sat in the perfect spot of dueling leaders, and he still got outkicked by Tawny Port, who I don't think anybody considers, at least right now, a top-class three-year-old. He's stepping up to face top-class three-year-olds after he couldn't hold off Tawny Port. And I just think he may have a little bit more punch going shorter. Even in his Florida Derby win, he ran a very slow final furlong of over 14 seconds. So that leads me to the two Matt Wynn horses. And I just think overall the Matt Wynn was a stronger prep in my eyes than the Ohio Derby, despite Classic Causeway coming back out of the ladder and winning the Belmont Derby on turf. You know, these comparisons are a little messy to make one-to-one one one sometimes, but there was one horse who ran in both races named Dropping G's. He was beating 14 lengths in the Matt win and seven and a quarter lengths in the Ohio Derby. So that's a big difference for a horse who conceivably was in similar form going into both of those races. And to add to that, 
Third place finisher in the mat win, Rattle and Roll, who was a grade one winner as a two-year-old, came back to win the American Derby next time out, improving his buyer figure by seven points. So out of Cyberknife and Howling Time, I prefer Cyberknife because he's got the right style here to save ground, sit in the second flight, four to six lengths off the leader, kick home strongest of the non-favorites should the pace get hot. You know, Howling Time was able to rate and win as a two-year-old. And Joe Talamo, who's his rider in this race, would be wise to back off the pace and try that again on Saturday. But with him having success in his last two races on the lead, it's tough, I think, for connections to change what had been working. So he definitely could get caught up in the pace, whereas I don't have that worry with Cyberknife. I know Florangeru is just going to sit, be patient, try to make one run, and hope the speed comes back. All right, so here are the plays. we got a $200 budget for this race and for the pick four combined. So in the Haskell, I'm going with $70 to win on number one, Cyberknife, $30 to win on number four, Howling Time, then $10 exactas with number two, Taba, and number seven, Jack Christopher over Cyberknife and Howling Time. So within the race, I'm betting $140 total. And the pick four, we're going to lean on number three, search results in the Molly Pitcher. She ran a terrific race for Chad Brown, dueling the great Latruska, champion Latruska, into defeat in the Ogden Phipps before understandably tiring a bit to be third late in the race. Anything close to that effort, she's going to win the Molly Pitcher. She just outclasses those horses, and she's got the kind of speed to be successful on the Mammoth Strip, which is generally a little bit more favorable to speed horses. Got the grade one United Nations, which is right before the Haskell. We'll use the top three from the Manhattan, who are all coming back in this race. Number one, Adamo. Number four, Tribuvan, who won the United Nations last year. And number 10, Gafo, along with number three, Temple, Temple, who I think is the horse in that race. that could make some noise, hopefully at a square price, six or eight to one or so. And the matchmaker, which is the first leg of the pick four, will spread a bit using a huge bomb in number one, Hull Bodemeister, who has got, she's got poor form right now, but she's bred to like turf. Her dam was completely a turf horse. Also use number two, Lamista, number four, Lady Rockstar, number five, Flighty Lady, and number seven, Vigilante's Way. So here's the pick four ticket. We'll put it up on the screen. One, two, four, five, seven with three, with one, three, four, ten, with one, two, four, seven, which is $40 for $50. And then we'll press with the favorites in the Haskell going one, two, four, five, seven with three, with one, three, four, ten, with two, seven which adds up to another $20 for 50 cents, which is $60 total. The pick four starts in race nine. So we got all these plays up on the screen. Best of luck if you're following along. Thank you again to the Breeders' Cup for joining us on Better Things with Joe Bianca. I'm so excited for this partnership. And it really does kick off with a nice card and a nice race on Saturday, a race that, like I said, a lot of us will be handicapping and watching no matter what. But it really adds to it with you got the star power of Jack Christopher and Taba. But then they they have a little bit of vulnerability as well. So you can potentially make some money in the race, too. So looking forward to it on Saturday. If you're anywhere near the Jersey Shore, you definitely should head down to Monmouth Park. It's a phenomenal day of racing. The weather looks like it's going to be pretty good and cannot wait for it. All right. So that's going to do it for this edition of Better Things with Joe Bianca. Thank you so much for watching. Thanks again to the Breeders' Cup for joining us. Thank you to Michael Baychuk for coming on and talking to me. Had a lot of fun in this episode. Best of luck this weekend. Bet in the Haskell. We'll be back in a couple weeks. We'll be back Whitney week to preview that race. That's another star-studded race that I think a lot of people have circled on their calendar. So that'll be a lot of fun. But first, enjoy the Haskell and enjoy all the, the racing action. The rest of July, we'll see you in a little bit. I want to thank Patty Wolf, our producer, and our editors, Anthony LaRocca, Leah LaRocca, and Nathan Wilkinson. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next time on Better Things, Joe Bianca.